Turning it all upside down. Coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Welcome back to a new season of Love Thy Neighbor. Really, we just needed a little hiatus for the holiday season, but why not break it up into two seasons while we're at it? Closing in on 10 months of doing doing the good deed of spreading Niebuhr love, we are still the only podcast exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. We have some great episodes up ahead this in this new year. We're excited to announce that we will be interviewing Niebuhr Scholar and DePaul University Professor Dr. Scott Paith in February. And we have a cu- another couple guests that we're currently in talks with, to work out a date with, who, quite frankly, it's hard to believe they're even considering coming on with us, Jokers. We'll have to leave you in the dark on those two for now, but stay tuned. You're seriously... Not going to want to miss those. Okay, so for the last several months, we've been going through, off and on, Niebuhr's 1937 work, Beyond Tragedy. It's a lesser-known work compared to his more groundbreaking volumes, Moral Man and Moral Society, Nature and Destiny of Man, and and Irony of American History. But Beyond Tragedy is significant in a number of ways. First, it comes right at the precipice of World War II, right at the eve of World War II. So we get to see a highly regarded public intellectual grappling with issues he sees across the the globe as it is teetering on the brink of war. He's essentially investigating a powder keg from the point of view of a Christian ethicist. And what is so ominous is he sees so many issues that we look around and find among us today. Hubris, self-righteousness, self-delusion, mass delusion, hysteria, identity cults, irony, and hypocrisy, and he adds to it his cutting version of Christian anthropology, the sinful nature, and its seemingly endless expressions in the conduct of humanity on every level and in every heart. And that and that leads into the second reason this is an important work to investigate. This book comes right at the time Niebuhr more or less puts it all together. He had been evolving throughout the 1930s in his anthropology, introducing more Augustine, more Kierkegaard, more Calvin and Luther and St. Paul into his thought, sharpening the edge of his critique with more classically Christian thinkers. And the result is a sobering picture of humanity, stripped of its delusions about itself, while also not totally consumed by oblique realism and capable of imagining a better way forward. And appropriately, what Niebuhr does in this work, once he's put his Christian anthropology all together, he doesn't immediately set out to write a systematized hamartiology. That comes in his next book, The Nature and Destiny of Man. But rather, he introduces his thought through a collection of meditations on selected scriptures. They're called sermonic essays. Just like any sermon, he takes a scripture, teases it out, and then discovers its truths, not just in the narrative presented in scripture, but on the pages of history as it's unfolding around him. 
Now, some of these chapters, I will admit, are better formulated than others. But what you can see budding here in this book is an exquisite and at times haunting exposition of his times and the biblical truths of sin, love, humility, and repentance all throughout. A critique and exposition that will serve as the backdrop to his more developed works in the coming decades. So by all means, follow along, uh, everybody. We're, we've posted a link to a free online copy of Beyond Tragedy on our Twitter account. You can even just Google Beyond Tragedy PDF and you'll find it. But follow along if you haven't yet, and we'll continue going through this, and you can catch up to the discussion at your own pace. But for today, we're looking at chapter 10. We're all the way to chapter 10, gents, and it's called The Transvaluation of Values. By the way, I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined, as always, by our co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. And at this point, I want to turn to Aaron to read the scripture Niebuhr will be examining today. So the scripture that we read is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble, noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Things that are not to reduce to nothing, things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. Very good. That's one of my favorites. So Niebuhr actually uh, breaks us down into four sections. There's no introduction this time. He just launches right into the very first section. But uh, he doesn't name any of these, so I went ahead and took the liberty of naming them. So as always, here's the official names of the sections Entered the first one I'm calling Nietzsche was right. Nietzsche was right. Section one. You steal that from Tim Keller? He has a he has an article that says Nietzsche was right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> I saw somebody on Twitter the other day, Zach, you commented on it. They're asking, hey, what's a good response? What's a what's a good Christian response to Nietzsche? And of course, you put uh, you know, you should read this chapter. Yeah. Tragedy. But I said, actually, you can actually Nietzsche was right about a lot of stuff. Like yeah. you can actually take uh, maybe Christians should listen to him um, on a lot of points. And what we'll find in this is interesting. I, I want to see how you guys parse this out. But uh, Niebuhr really agrees with him in a lot of ways. And but he, he, he does kind of turn him on his, his head a little bit. But he yeah. kind of fully embraces the critique Niebuhr is leveling and says, yeah, you got that right. But uh, so part one, Nietzsche was right. Part two, the mighty will be judged. Part three, the noble will be judged. And part four, the wise will be judged. So basically Niebuhr throughout this chapter is kind of dissecting that scripture that Aaron just read. Is it from First Corinthians? Yes, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, the scripture from First Corinthians. Um, and he just breaks down each each section of it. Um, and then kind of closes with the foolish be made wise type of thing. Um, so first of all, uh, section one, Nietzsche was right, Zach. What was what was Nietzsche right about? Nothing ever. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, I you know, it's interesting that this that he says Nietzsche is right because I, I think that um you know, e even just in reading this and having read Nietzsche 
that's one of the this is one of the precise things that I picked up that I was like, dang, like I, I think he's he's right about this. If Christianity is kind of um is doing this. Anyways, what section one is talking about is it's highlighting this idea from Nietzsche that there is something about Christianity that goes against the kind of the natural flow of things, the natural order of things. It's like says, literally taking values and turning them upside down. Yeah, yeah. He says, uh, Christianity declared Nietzsche is the vengeance the slaves have taken upon their master, driven by resentment, a resentment experienced by creatures who, de who deprived as they are of the proper outlet of action, are forced to find their compensation in imaginary revenge. They have transvalued the morality of the aristocrats and have turned sweet into bitter and bitter into sweet. So basically it's the a, picture that, that Nietzsche is painting here is if you can imagine slaves or peasants or something like that restrained by their oppressors to the point that they almost have to create or invent or embrace some new reversal of the reigning order to even sustain themselves. Like, like buying into Christianity for them is kind of to Nietzsche like this, he would say this fictional uh, release to help you cope mm -hmm. uh, with the realities of your situation, the the imagination that you know the that the foolish be made wise, and and that the the uh, like in in Mary's song, uh, the the rich go away with nothing, like empty handed, kind of this imagine this imaginary thing occurring uh, just in our minds. We might say it's the spiritual world or something like that, where we imagine the the table being turned and, well, and the people on top being on bottom and the people on bottom going to the top yeah but i think that he's pressing in and saying that uh, if i'm wrong maybe but uh, nietzsche he's saying that nietzsche is right about his assessment of what christianity is doing yes like that this is how this is actually what our value is like that there is a upside down kingdom if you were with the christian cliche there there is a emphasis in the bible upon these what he calls anti uh, aristocratic ideas that that is true people want to say well you can kind of have both you know what i mean like it's not really anti aristocratic everything but he's saying no no nietzsche was right right one of the, the nietzsche quotes that stuck in my mind for forever is that christianity preserves what is ripe for destruction that's what he says it, you know and and i think he's dead on at the heart of what christianity is all about christianity preserves what is ripe for destruction yeah he says that in the antichrist um and you can see just from that quote that like some Christians would be like, heck yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's what it yeah. does. And Nietzsche's like, heck yeah, that's what it does. And perhaps these things should be destroyed. Yeah. But at least there's like an honesty to what Nietzsche's saying, because there's a, there's a, a certain like gruesomeness to what he's saying, really. That's I mean, what I really... love about him is that yeah. he's so honest. Like he's honest. He, he kind of... Uh, exposes to us our illusions or or at least makes clear that what we're working with here is faith like it, it is yeah. you know it it is turning things upside down from the way that things actually are but but he so, i think the critical thing the really important distinction i want to make at least for our listeners is that he's not making the distinction of um like intelligence or wisdom in the sense of like hey uh this is going to be like foolish in terms of like like when people often take this verse they take this word foolish and they say okay well if i'm being stupid 
then then I'm on track, right? And they can they can articulate that way. But what he's saying is it's actually a foolishness of value. It's choosing to do the thing mm. that everybody's saying, well, that's a waste of time. You're helping that person who's it's not going to help themselves. That's foolish. That's you're, an important distinction is yeah. the values part of it. It's not yeah. good to be stupid. Right? Yeah, yeah, but, exactly. But we need to watch how we value wisdom Yeah, uh, because that can get us into trouble. And we'll, we'll get into that here in a second. Now, Aaron, uh, you did read up on transvaluation of values. Well, like, yeah. So the, the term yeah. transvaluation of values is a Nietzschean term. Like that, is, yeah. that comes from Nietzsche. It's a very technical so term for Nietzsche. I think it comes about in like the Antichrist and uh supplementary text on the genealogy genealogy of morals okay let's i i think this is a really important term and i think we would do a bit of injustice to nietzsche and even to niebuhr if we just kind of just gloss over that term so let's contextualize yeah totally agree yeah transvaluation of values let's hear it so think of 1800s post-industrialized europe right there's a specter, there's a spirit hanging over all the people. And Nietzsche is walking around and sensing this sort of odd incongruity with how he values strength, strong will, determination Power. coming up through mm. Schopenhauer. And he sees something very troubling in certain political and religious movements. What are those political movements? Democracy, socialism. What do these political movements value? Well, the voices of the minorities being protected and heard. The people being able to vote in people of power. This goes back to an issue raised by Plato in the Republic uh, and other texts in the dialogues, where you have the tyranny of the majority who vote to kill a virtuous man of Socrates. That's not to say Nietzsche likes Socrates. He actually believes that much of what European history gets wrong finds its expression in Plato and Socrates. Why is this? Well, Socrates is critiquing normal Greek and Roman values of bodily pleasure um, by elevating intellectual status of the soul. The virtues that you inhabit are obtained by removing yourself from pleasure and pain, getting away from these things. And going up to Christianity, there is this sense of self-sacrifice, giving up your life for another, um, this communal sort of worship and living. So this is a sort of basis where for Europeans at that moment in time where Nietzsche's writing, they have been submerged in Christianity, submerged in this Platonism, right? And so for Nietzsche, the the solution to this problem is not just using the tools at hand to fix yourself. I, imagine you're in a math class and you guys are trying to fix a problem. Well, you would you would you would refer to in your mind to all the equations and things that you've learned from previous people to uh, to think about the problem. That's not what Nietzsche's doing. Nietzsche's basically saying is that what we have at the moment, the concepts that we have through Christianity and through Platonism, democracy, and socialism, are not going to solve what is at issue here. If we keep on letting the poor and the weak among us dictate dictate what we got going on, we have to invent something new. And that is what transvaluation is. It's not just a reversal. It is inventing something completely new to fight back against 
uh, the prevailing morality, which Nietzsche calls the Christian European morality. So if we could plot this out, like perhaps Nietzsche uh, first saw a transvaluation of values and he will like he almost talks about Christianity, like Christian culture, like it's a malfunctioning human. Yeah. Like it's a bunch of malfunctioning humans that were evolving. And then Christianity like put a halt right in the evolution and caused us to all of a sudden live for otherworldliness and, yeah. you know, and a bunch of ideals that have nothing to do with uh, our own betterment, but kind of releases us from these types of things. So in that way, it's actually kind of similar to Marx's critique of religion being yeah. the opiate of the masses. It pacifies us and yeah. it takes the peasants and makes them, gives them a modicum of, of happiness just to keep them from fighting and from exerting their power. It removes a certain vigor, like from life. And I think that's what he really emphasizes really well is that, you know, it sedates something that would be powerful. It, 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 it puts like a check on like more brutish behavior, I guess, like, a, or the, the more, um, refining behavior of, of striving with all that we have to achieve, you know? Right. Um, so, yeah. so, so Nietzsche detects the transvaluation of values with Christianity and then he seeks out a new transvaluation of values to undo that. This partly does take place by going back, right? And he does that in his first book, um, Philosophy in the Tragic Age of of, of the Greeks. And he really distinguishes the the Socratic school and the things to follow from that, right? Aristotelianism, all these other things, with the tragic plays um, and dramas that emphasize and almost uplift the body right so he he goes back to those to sort of really formulate a new like what what we'll call a vitality or vitalism um so yeah yeah so so on its face Niebuhr's like okay yes Nietzsche there's a transvaluation of values going on here within Christianity that uh but Niebuhr is very quick Whenever he talks about this transvaluation of values, he's very quick to add a subtle nuance in there to Paul's language. So he says that Paul does dare to declare that in the kingdom of God, not many of the great of the world will be chosen. However, Niebuhr is quick to point out he does not exclude them. He does not exclude the mighty. Uh, and he likens this to Jesus's uh, allegory of the camel going through the eye of the needle uh, teaching. And he's and 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 Niebuhr says that, you know, when Paul's talking, these words of Paul are really just kind of a neat and succinct summary of a general biblical emphasis. It's not like commanding a new law. It's kind of like what Zach was saying is that it's about the values, basically. It's the emphases yeah. that we place on certain things, not necessarily like like handing down to us a hard and fast rule, you know. Uh, so he says that the and here's a quote from Niebuhr. Says, I mean, the, the mighty, the rich and the noble are condemned precisely because their position tempts them to a pride, which is offensive in the sight of God. And this is a very important nuance right here. He uh this emphasis he puts on temps just by virtue of being rich and noble and mighty does not condemn you you are condemned because your position tempts you it will tempt you ultimately to a pride 
which is offensive in the sight of God. So there is a choice there. There's a sliver. There's a, there is an eye of a needle there. But the temptation is to act in a way which is offensive in the sight of God. Yeah. So, but with all that said, given the nuance, Niebuhr does conclude, and I'll, I got a quote here. He says, Nietzsche is quite right. The whole biblical thought, the whole of biblical thought is charged with anti-aristocratic ideas, or we could say values, with hopes and predictions that in God's sight, the estimates which history places upon human achievements will be overturned. Yeah. I love I love that because it's like a double-edged sword. It is both it is both cutting to the rich Christian and cutting to in anybody that's holding Nietzsche's like not cutting to Nietzsche, but it is and like it is a uh, uh, a response, a, a rebuttal to Nietzsche. But mm-hmm. I, I do love that it's also cutting to the person who's the the aristocrat, you know, the the rich Christian, because it, it it's kind of a both and response, you know. Well, funny enough, I think like I can't find the exact quote. I thought I had highlight, highlighted it, so apologies for our listeners. So vaguely, Niebuhr, this is a vague quotation, so don't quote me on this exactly, but Niebuhr says something to the effect of, this is the reason why Christianity does have an opposition to culture, right? Mm -hmm. But what Niebuhr will show as we go along is that it's not a total um, obliteration of culture. It's not something that we just run away from or hate. Like a total condemnation. Yeah, not total condemnation. It's It's a judgment. Mm. um we yeah we harbor a judgment of culture that the the kinds of values that we can see in culture can lead to or can tempt us to towards certain actions that are offensive to god and not only offensive to god but causes us to sin against our neighbor as well yeah yeah and and before before we move on i had one question about this first section you know before we this might be helpful to the listeners that is would you say that uh, Nietzsche's problem with Christianity could be summar- it could be summarized or summed up in a simpler way of just saying that really Christianity is kind of anti-evolution. It is it is it, it fights against the things that have gotten us where we are in the sense of like survival and uh, um, like like for instance with like pity, um, pitying what should be destroyed. Let it be naturally destroyed, right? That's what Nietzsche would say. Um, and so really, he's just that's kind of where his values are being drawn from in some sense. Is he saying, well, hey? There is a sort of like acknowledgement that Christians are hypocritical to their own values, right? That while they admire pity, you know, crusades, you know, these things, like as as most common critiques of religion go, like, oh, you believe in love and God is love, but you know, you got people killing people and whatnot. But and we'd be remiss if we didn't include in our understanding of Nietzsche the the more broader goals of his uh of his work it's so we shouldn't the temptation for christians is to label nietzsche as anti-christian nietzsche doesn't want to be anti-christian as much as we just need to put this behind us and move on to something else he's not just he's not defining himself as that which is in opposition to christianity and christian values but as we like we've moved on in the sciences 
the scientists will tell you God is dead. We've moved mm-hmm. on there. It's the ethicist and the political scientists, the, yeah. the, the politicians. These are the people who are still getting hung up on this stuff and to the detriment of our own culture. But they need to now catch up to the sciences and put God behind us and then move on. Uh, allegory it, and thus the allegory uses in thus spoke Zarathustra is the 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 camel, the lion, and the child, and the camel is like this religious, uh, burdensome person who is always carrying things around on its back. Yeah. The lion is the express freedom to counteract the camel. It's like it's like every Christian who goes off to college. All of a sudden, you know, they become the lion and they start opposing that Christianity of their youth um, blatantly, you know, at times. But he says we can't get locked into this lion versus camel, this freedom versus religion or freedom versus Christianity type of thing. We have to just set that aside and move on to the last stage, which, yeah. which is the child. The goal is to develop something new, yeah. not and just put all this stuff behind us. But but it, to look at Nietzsche as just that. Um, just in that framework of his critique against Christianity, I think that you do nail it, Zach, is that. Christianity offer Christianity and Platonism by extension offers an interruption to an evolution we would otherwise be having right now. Mm. That we would be well on our way to the Ubermensch, ha- you know, had Christianity not interrupted that. But now, because we uh, we are helping those things that should die out, um, is is basically what's holding us back. Well, and I think that this is actually a more person. I, I take I find this a more personal indictment of Christianity than I do any other like argument for, about God. That this is like, hey, it's not a matter of like you're um you you you're dumb. You say saying something. Oh, you're dumb. You don't believe in God. It's more like, hey, like we're trying to. Nietzsche's almost just saying like we're trying to make progress here and and, and you guys got to move on from this because it's it's really getting in the way yeah. um we need that, to catch up to all the sciences but it's yeah it's not a matter of just saying well god's dead so we're all good now like that really stupid christian movie god not dead <laughs> like you have this atheist professor right Nietzsche's point is that and this is the analogy he gives in books are through as well is that you have all these people in the town who think, well, God's dead, of course. We don't believe in God. But the whole point is you still operate mm-hmm. on a Christian morality. You don't have to believe in Jesus, but you still have the same values, right? right? So how can you get over that? And it's it's similar to, I think we talked about this a while back, Zach, when you're going through your like future studies um, sermon series. But it's this idea that, you know, it used to be in the in the good old days, you would pray for the right weather if you were a farmer. Now you just turn on, you know, the the weatherman, the meteorologist, and like you don't need God in that way anymore. It used to be the sick would be taken to a priest or a shaman or something yeah. like that, and you would pray for them. Today we take them to the hospital. You don't need God anymore for that. So all other facets of our life have moved on from God. This, uh, th- but this, our morality is lagging behind, and Nietzsche is trying to catch us up, you yeah. know, in that regard. But so his major critique then is is this transvaluation of values. Like we need to get rid of this. We need to transvalue the transvaluation, the original transvaluation of values of Christianity, and turn them back in the right place. Again. And then neighbors, we got to transvalue the transvaluation of the transvaluation. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nietzsche is trying to affirm the original transvaluation. 
and saying, and we'll we'll get to the conclusion here in a bit, that even uh, us Christians who uh, who proclaim the transvaluation of values aren't really living by it. Um, and that's well, going to be his next point is the history actually is uh, is keeping us from actually um, like there's this bitter feud constantly yeah. between not just history, but our sinful selves and executing the kingdom. But but just if I can make one more comment, this is the reason why the keep on transvaluing is not just to shift what was before, because then it would just be chaotic. Um, Deleuze, who is like one of the greatest interpreters of Nietzsche. Um, has this idea of inventing concepts. So transvaluation is inventing new ways of thinking about life and the world. Good. Yeah, you can good. you can use the past to do that, but it's not just keeping on reversing what like going. It's not countercultural. That's to say, mm-hmm. it's a really bad way of thinking about transvaluation. It's inventing new modes, new ways of thinking about the world. And how you could works. say that Marx was in the business of transvaluing, but like he he thought that it would be a natural progression where we would just wake up and be like, you know, yeah. dude's got all this money and we are, you know, breaking our back for him. Yeah. So we need to rise up. So he was believing there would be a natural transvaluation. And the critical theorists later on, they were in the business of actually explicitly trying to create a Marxian view uh, to transvalue our current uh system but marx had too much pity for those those poor proletarians too much pity (laughs) so anyway so part two so now uh niebuhr goes deeper and deeper into into this quote by paul uh from first corinthians and into nietzsche's transvaluation of values Um, Uh, i like the uh he needs to start off from the outset and saying that nietzsche was right but then he asks a further question he says specifically nietzsche was right in his belief that this transvaluation of values exists but he he asked the question was nietzsche right in his belief though that this transvaluation of values represented a threat to quote all the highest values of human culture so on the contrary uh to to niebuhr he says that history actually usually defies the standards of the kingdom of god the path of least resistance is to go against uh the kingdom so while we still might have a, a Christian, Christianized morality, the path of least resistance is always to to buck that and to go yeah. against that. And I think it, I think it has to be stated that I think that like really what Niebuhr is saying here, he he starts off with this these two sentences in this this second section where he says, "But human history is more than nature. Right. It is a it is a realm of freedom." the inequalities of nature are accentuated by human imagination until they become intolerable and destroy themselves. And I actually think that what Niebuhr is doing is he actually actually is demonstrating a better, a, a more whole picture of history than Nietzsche does. I think Nietzsche, his primary weakness is that he has a very limited view of what history is. Yeah, you know it's I mean? like to Nietzsche, it's like, it's like uh, just adding to a recipe. Okay, we have culture, add transvaluation of christian values and bada bing we have a christian society but uh and we have christian history now and but niebuhr is saying that actually human history culture all these things are really chaotic and messy and religious judgments just kind of take the long view so the best that the christian can do is kind of have a prophetic voice and perspective of the long view of history that the weak will be made strong despite the current situation in history so christianity is kind of this long term so maybe at best christianity is this long-term threat 
to the pride of humanity, but it is ultimately no match uh, for the vicissitudes of life. Like you can't just yeah. add water and boom, you have a you have a Christian culture. And and also, I mean, this is that's a good point. I think the word we're looking for is revolt. Niebuhr is not is saying that Christianity is not a revolt against yeah. society and culture. Later on, he'll say what Paul says in this section we read earlier is that not many of the mighty are called. That doesn't necessarily mean that the mighty there won't be people who are of well well means, you know, of high society mixed among the low people. It's not the picture Nietzsche draws that it's just the slaves revolting against their masters. Right. It's not this neat binary. Yeah, it's not. It's it's much more that where Niebuhr says that humility and poverty is the is the essence for understanding uh, this sort of com comp not competition but combat against the values of culture and where he will go with that mixture of humility and poverty is the uneasy conscience. Right. That is what Christianity right. instills in people. Yeah, so let's get there. So uh, from now until basically the end of the chapter, Niebuhr's going to be setting up uh, like little snippets of that verse from Paul, and he's going to be examining each one. So first, uh, the first aspect of this is, is that not many mighty after the flesh are called. That's what Paul says. Not many mighty after the flesh are called. So I set this up in kind of a couple of different points. So for, the first point here is that he's going to make clear that the mighty are are necessary to society. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good thing that he establishes. What does he mean by this, Zach? Why are the mighty, I guess, necessary for society? Well, I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but I think sometimes it goes overlooked. Is that there is a they have a function in society? They're they're indispensable. They're um, they're a part of achieving unity in society. They're a part of uh, establishing order in society. Like you you can't just go and have everybody be a, a sheep and a lamb and not have some sort of power in society. Um, they they have a function. Yeah, so like if you can imagine like the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire by most accounts was an evil empire. I mean, it did a lot of horrid awful things. Uh they they had people fight to the death for their entertainment. I mean, these were not good people, but it organized society. So it had this kind of implicit balance of power where people could uh it wasn't complete anarchy and chaos so the mighty even in rome offered at least some structure and organization to society no matter how horrible human beings they actually were a great example could be uh, saddam hussein uh you take out saddam hussein in iraq and what happens you know absolute chaos ensues and you end up with actually a whole lot more injustice than you did when you had the unjust leader uh, in power. Uh, so even like an unjust tyrant still offers more justice than uh, than complete anarchy. So yeah, so that's the fir first point. He wants to make clear that the mighty are necessary. They might not be chosen like completely um, in the kingdom of God, just ba you know, based upon their status, uh, but they are chosen in this world. We need them. And then the second point is Yet the mighty stand under judgment, under the judgment of God in a special sense. And this is a quote from Niebuhr. They are of all men most tempted to transgress the bounds of human creatureliness 
and to imagine themselves God. And he actually uses, remember this in 1937, he uses Hitler as an example of this. Before he mm. even, you know, invades Poland, uh, he uses Hitler as an example uh, of this type of person who is most tempted to transgress the bounds of human creatureliness and to imagine himself God. Uh, and then he says, quote, all men are tempted to this sin. All men, even the impoverished, even the lowly are tempted to the sin, but the mighty are particularly subject to it. What does he mean by this? Like, why are the mighty particularly subject to this temptation of this uh, God complex type sin? He he goes into a um, an analysis of the, lo- of the logic bet- of of what consists of people who are mighty that like wealth and status almost equates their virtues and because of their virtues they're also powerful and wealthy it mm. you know so so you could say like you i've heard many people say today um oh that person's really rich god must really favor them mm. because of that and so and then you could say well god favors them because they're rich the the, the argument works both ways so neighbor saying you know it's really hard for that person who is brought up believing that to remove themselves from that belief and and see that you know they're also contingent players in this game mm-hmm. well and he says <clears throat> you know he he quotes uh Egon Friedels I think that's how he said um he says deep he quotes him and in the quote it says deep rooted in human beings this heart's inertia this spiritual cowardice that never dares to acknowledge its own wrongdoing is the secret malady of which all societies perish. But I think he's specifically speaking of the mighty there, mm-hmm. right? That there, that that's one of the one of the aspects, one of the ways, one of the ways that pride gets in the way of the necessary humility to function, to prosper. Um, I, I love the uh, the story he tells of. I think it was like a journalist who goes to, uh, does an interview with a big rich trader on Wall Street. And the journalist writes this in his uh, like after interview article, uh, quote, I have just been subjected to the unconscious arrogance of conscious power. <laughs> and uh, that's a great that's a great line. I mean, that's, that's Niebuhr, fantastic. Niebuhr talks about how in power there is this almost seeming like necessary or like it's least like it's at least the path of least resistance for the powerful to be ignorant of their own blind spots and their own moral failings and and what i love about this is that he that niebuhr is doing something that's like almost like wisdom tradition he is saying look there paul has said this in a theological way right he said that the mighty uh not many of the mighty are chosen now let me show you why that is let right. me show you what it is There's we do. Very practical reasons why this yeah. is true. This isn't just some made up thing. Let me show you, like in the world, like why this is actually like a real problem. Why yeah. why this is and how it plays out. And this gets into Aaron's earlier comment about how the the poor and uh, the poor have this perspective where they have a humility that allows them to be moral and kind of. Uh, in, in the Christian view. Um, but this is kind of the reverse side. And Niebuhr says, and I quote, the mighty man is incapable of the humility, which all sinful men should have before God. Uh, so it's very difficult for a mighty man to have the humility necessary, necessary to exact a Christian morality. 
Um, it's it's very the 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 richer and more powerful you become, the more difficult it is to maintain to hold on to that humility. You know that's why like a Warren Buffett type is a rare type of breed where he's a pretty but he it's interesting Warren Buffett actually tries to attain some semblance of the the normal human it's like a part of his ethic it's a weird thing where he still like drives a minivan from like 2005 or something like that and like he lives in like a very modest house or like you know pretty modest house um and so it but for but that's the eye of the needle like it's very difficult to find that uh sweet spot for rich people because the the more powerful they become, the more blind to their own limitations they become. And and those blind limitations lead to consequences, which Niebuhr describes right. as the periodic, what does he say, the periodic judgment of God in history. So there will be an ultimate judgment, but he says that this kind of like, but again, that's like getting into that wisdom tradition again, like that, you know, most of the time you should probably follow these rules, these, these this wisdom. It's not always going to pan out the way that the wisdom says it is, yeah. but in the end of history, it will. Yeah, it, at the end of history, it definitely will. And it periodically will happen within history. I lo- yeah, that's an important point. And we've seen it. Like, we've seen where the mighty have been cast down. Um, the most recent example, I love this so much. This was the most beautiful thing I've seen on in the Twitter wor- in the Twitterverse in some time. When Elon Musk put out a poll. Because, you know, he was, like, kind of dictating like uh, who he should allow on Twitter and who he shouldn't based upon these polls, you know? So he put out a poll on Twitter saying, uh, should I step down as CEO or something like that? And the majority that won, the, the majority said that, yes, you should step down. That was a beautiful picture of hubris and judgment coming back to haunt, you know, the people who are blind someone who was blind to his own limitations. I'm really glad you thought about that because I it's really bad. I was thinking of The Purge, the movie. <laughs> Tie that in for me. Well, I mean, it's like all the wealthy people who have all the means and the and the guns, they start this these societies of bringing judge, judgment and ju- injustice uh to their own to their own selves by eradicating the poor. It was The Purge was designed to get rid of the undesirables of society mm-hmm. to help clean up the muck, right? Uh, by giving everyone life. And it came back to want. haunt them. And it came back to haunt them, right? Um, but yeah, love. I, it. I I think the best way to think about this is the 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 temptation for a lot of people who are in those positions of power is the added an old phrase: "If it ain't broke, don't fix it." Right. Mm-hmm. But then you have someone like Job, who experience experiences tremendous suffering. What does he do? He transcends his situation by having a conversation with God. Yeah, you know, interesting. So, interesting. I really like the. Um, it's very brief, but Niebuhr compares this phenomenon of the rich falling to the tallest trees in the forest, uh, whose branches he says rob neighboring trees of sunlight yeah. and and keep them down. But ultimately, the height of the tree makes them more prone to fall, you know, uh, or get choked out yeah. by the roots of the many trees surrounding them. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, and he concludes with this, uh, with this statement right here, he concludes this, um, section on the mighty will be judged saying this quote, every human society ultimately transgresses the laws of the kingdom of God, wherefore God's judge, uh, ultimate judgment upon the mighty is also a periodic judgment in history. 
Very good. So next section, um, section three, the noble will be judged. So now he hops from the noble or from the mighty to the noble. The noble are judged. And um, he uses the quote from Paul that uh, not many noble are called. So not many mighty are called, not many noble are called. How does he define uh, the noble? Who, who are these people he's talking about? Well, I think he makes a really important distinction because often we can use noble in a positive sense, especially like today, if I said that somebody was noble, it'd be really easy to be like, oh yeah, like that's a noble person. That's wonderful. But really what it means is just well-born. They're well-born, which means they are, it's like a term for the child of an aristocrat, somebody who's, you know, has, has manners, who's been taught the the finer senator's senator's son. There you go. And Uh, it's important to note that they are connected in some nobility is connected to a previous generation that was the mighty you know yeah um so the noble are the children and descendants of the mighty they're uh, mm-hmm. the aristocratic um and yeah he points out that first of all their position their prominence is completely illogical it's circular reasoning um, quoting Niebuhr, to be well-born means to be born in that circle of society in which to be born is to be well-born. So you're great just because you were born great. Like there's, yeah. no, there's nothing special about you except that you're special for no yeah. reason. Well, and and I think that, man, when he gets into it, I mean, he says, this is a, such an excellent line. You know, he says the basis of this, or sorry, uh, they designate both social preference and moral worth. The basis of this confusion lies in the identification of manners and morals, a characteristic of every aristocrat estimate of human beings. And so it's like, I could have probably just summarized that, but what what he's getting at that I think is really powerful about that is that we really do have a tendency to conflate the morality of a person with their manners, right? And the manners are really just an external Society. thing. Yeah. And, and it is very indicative of rich people, well, let's of wealthy, break the, of well-born yeah. people. You know what let's, I mean? That's a very- Let's break this down a little bit. So, and I said, I think that this could be more widely applied, not just to who we tend to think about as aristocratic, but uh, white privilege as well. Um, so we have been born into a certain type of system that benefits us. I, uh, I'll tell you what right now, and, and by the way, this is, this harkens back, I think, to something Sabella said a while back, where he says that a lot of times we confuse holiness for basically white middle-class propriety, Hmm. you know, uh, which is a hard thing to, to, to choke down, but, but it's a really important critique. Um, I, I know my struggles, um, when I'm grading papers, um, in one sense, I okay, so I want to reward like kind of better grammar and spelling and formatting and all this stuff. But on the other hand, I understand that a lot of those things were not passed down to many of my students like they were to me, like they were to Aaron, like they were to you. Uh, so these standards of kind of proper writing become additional obstacles for people who were born where they they simply speak differently. Uh, it's really kind of messed up if you think about it. But again, on the other hand, a student should get better grades that they can provide more clarity to their thought in their papers. But that's judged greatly by how similar my speech is to the person that I'm reading. Does that make sense? So so basically, I, I run into this difficulty where, and I think we do this as a culture as well, where a certain way of talking and living uh reflects class more than it does how smart someone is um or how good of a student they are 
or how moral they are, you know? Um, and so that's, it's, that, that's a, that's a problem that's, it's hard to escape. Uh, but anyway, th- and this is all very confusing and Niebuhr draws this out and he says, I, I think it's part of what uh, Zach just read. He says, all these double connotations hide the moral confusion of the mighty in the second and tier, uh, second and third generation. The first generation of mighty men may be rough fellows who make no claims to gentleness and either manners or morals. But the second generation uses the privileges amassed by the power of the fathers to patronize the arts, to acquire culture, to obscure, to uh, consciously or unconsciously, to obscure the brutalities of the struggle for power, which goes on in every society and which constitutes its very life. It hides injustice behind a facade of beauty. Yeah. Gentle manners is what he says right and that's so that is so true i mean i i I don't think i've ever heard a better indictment of white middle class america right there i mean it's just that is such a like i mean i think that you know parents should teach their kids manners but sometimes that's held up as the pinnacle or the the dividing line what divides people or or what what people what makes people bearable you know what makes do we we want them at our church you know do we really want those people you know i hear that all the time about and this comes from family members and you people you hear it on Fox News a lot as well. I remember when Sean Hannity interviewed Cornell West, and he quoted the statistic by saying that over fifty percent of black babies are born out of wedlock. So we should fix the home first, and then deal with all the other stuff like the economic stuff. Right, <laughs> and like I that's the kind of vibe I got when yeah. I read this section. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. How interesting. And this is why, um, by the way, uh, he brings in Isaiah and Amos here, which I love, and says this is why they are critical of high culture. Uh, Amos says, quoting from Amos, bring no more vain oblations, incense is an abomination unto me, the new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It is it is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. So Niebuhr says, this is a really good quote, these prophetic judgments are something more than Puritan iconoclasm. They are the expression of mankind's un- uneasy conscience about the relationship of culture to social injustice. The noble are not called because they sprinkle rose water on the cesspools of injustice and because they clothe tyrannical power with broadcloth and surround it with soft amenities and fool themselves and others by their pretensions. And I this oh my gosh we have to read this part about the ladies of nobility yeah I got to go there two oh seven right so he says even Lady Bountiful who takes established injustice for granted but seeks to deodorize it with incidental philanthropies and with deeds of kindness which are meant to display power as much as to express pity. Mm -hmm. Every act of aristocratic condescension by which the traditional reputation of the generosity of the gentle, quote unquote, has become established, falls under this judgment. So I'm thinking all those people, and I'm sorry, I'm sure they mean well, all those people who put on those uh, pictures on their instagram or their twitter or facebook of them with a little black baby somewhere in africa because they went on a two-week long mission trip this is 
projecting some kind of self-righteousness that obscures the injustices that lie underneath. It shows that, oh, we're doing something about it, you know, uh, by this kind of display of whatever. Uh, and I'm not saying that a two-week mission trip can't do some good. I'm just saying that that a lot of times can just well, and, and, to appease, give you an easy conscience yeah. well, about and, and, what's actually going on. Really what he's talking about here, I think even a better example of this would be billionaires, billionaire philanthropists. I mean, just as like a, an easier thing to grasp, I think you're contextualizing it into like the evangelical setting. But I think that what he's like, the, the ideal that he's talking about here is the not the ideal description of what he's talking about here is the person who is swaying the government in one direction that, that is bad for an entire group subgroup of people, but then they're going to that subgroup of people and doing like one like fundraiser for a hundred thousand dollars, but it's really going to cost yeah. that whole area. And I obviously that you could contextualize that to evangelicalism as, as much as you want, because it it's, you know, we tend to do that oh, yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Um, I've done it. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think about Henry Ford when I write, when I hear that. Yeah. Um, I'm sure Niebuhr's thinking about Henry. Ford. I thought, I thought the that's what he's talking about. The funniest thing is I actually, this past week and I went with my, my family to this place in Norwood, the Ford Burger Shack, and it's like <laughs> it's not it's not the name of it, but food was absolutely food was great, but it was all like all the iconoclast stuff and all like the images were like all in the memory of Henry Ford and the Ford Company, and all I could think of would Never eat here? <laughs> I don't know. Is this is this middle class propriety? Because everyone there was white. <laughs> I didn't know what to do about it. But Niebuhr would would do the dine and dash. He'd go and eat. <laughs> And he wouldn't pay. It was some pretty good food. I'm not going to lie. But yeah. So, okay. So he covers the mighty, the noble. Next, he goes after the wise. Watch out, folks. The wise will be judged. The section four, the wise will be judged. He starts off, but aren't the, aren't the basically he starts arguing, but aren't the wise the heroes in the story? Why, why don't we just solve all problems with, quote, Plato's dream world, where the wise are made the rulers of society? Why, Paul? Why should the wise not be called? And he says, quote, perhaps because they are not wise enough. They are not wise enough to see through the pretensions Mm -hmm. of the mighty and the noble consequently they tend to become servile camp followers of the mighty who do you guys think of when you think of this uh, i think i think there's a whole wash of people that i think of when you think when they say uh servile followers <laughs> of yeah. the of the mighty um i think of denise d'souza yeah that's a good one. who was like I think he went, I think he graduated like top of his class at Yale. He was like a lot of, a lot of people were anticipating like great things from him. And the dude has become just this servile camp follower of the mighty, you know, makes a movie. But... Well, and you know, <laughs> yeah. we could really, this is really a problem with the left and the right. Absolutely. It's almost like, it's yeah. almost like the mighty, the wise and the noble all kind of, they tend to kind of come together in society Mm -hmm. And they kind of team up and and often the one way that you can kind of tell is that there's not a lot of dissension allowed. There's not a lot of questioning allowed. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say the telltale signs that there's there's a bit of a, a servile followership. I mean, uh, following going on. Um, oh, on both but, sides. absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think honestly, like a lot of popular writing, a lot of self-help books, you can really find this. Yeah. Um, 
I think wherever you will find the mighty, no matter what ideology they are, you will find the priests who are capitulating the high yeah. pre the capitulating high priest trope, you know? Yeah. Um, and our high priests are, you know, um, philosophers and scientists and political scientists and all kinds of people. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I don't, I don't know how to say this, but you could see it. I mean, a really good example of this is honestly how people reacted to COVID and vaccines and masks on both sides honestly like there is you could really see this fleshed out i couldn't give you a precise example but you saw it over and over again where people didn't really want to think about it a lot they just wanted you to kind of pick a side Mm -hmm. um and some of that was i think on both sides some of that was the the mighty telling the wise to just you know make it make a decision here's the decision you know what i mean see what Um, i found really troubling with that was like just hear me on this both sides you know you get your you get your positions i've had so many competition my parents who will say well that's just your opinion this is my opinion or they'll say well i'm not claiming to know everything i've just heard these things so what they're trying to do is be impartial which is really a way of having an easy conscience exactly i mean that's 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 like this is what Niebuhr gets that as well, where it's like just because they have a prestige for impartiality, they become the most successful liars. Mm-hmm. They're not oh being true gosh. to themselves. That's such yeah. a quote. They're not they're not being true to what they think or what they believe. And in a weird way, they're actually just trying to try to minimize their involvement in the injustice going on. Mm-hmm. You know? So, well, so like the most successful liars. Yeah. Love that quote. Yeah. Like I, I would say, like, you know. Again, I'm. It's a bit of a risk here trying to, as I don't know all the details. But as I understand it, they they kind of afterwards make this assessment of like, for instance, like lockdowns, right? Yeah. And apparently, the from what I read, the the assessment of lockdowns was that they had a greater social toll in the long run. The way that they were employed, it was it was more detrimental to society and to kind of the the whole of society than actually not locking down. And instead of employing some other method, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the moment though, I mean, we all lived through COVID. If you had been there, that the wise man in many settings was saying, you're an idiot if you're against lockdowns, you know what I mean? Um, and I, I would have been that person. I'd been like, dude, we got to do this. This is the right thing to do. But really I was, I wasn't really actually being wise about it or thinking it through. I was just kind of going along with what the mighty were telling me, um, Without but trying to I'm get, I'm glad we did it because, yeah. like, by the time I end up getting COVID, I already had the vaccine. So I think a lot of that actually yeah. helped us from, you know, getting. Yeah, you know, I get it. And I'm just going off this, you know, I guess they said that they did this meta study of like trying to figure out like what was the social toll of it. And the, the cumulative social toll was actually worse than if we had just employed another method. Yeah. Um, but there was but a lot of questioning. It's so hard about it. to to play Monday morning quarterback, right? Because it, yeah, it, it, yeah. in the time it's a novel virus, we don't, we didn't even know if mass health really. Yeah, I mean, we didn't know a lot of things about like what this thing would do, and well, you know, we just knew that it was killing a lot of people. You know, but I think yeah. what you're getting at too, Zach, is that you know, people on all different sides and shades and perspectives don't exactly know everything about certain stuff people yeah. might be have more expertise and whatnot yeah. but there are people who use 
impartiality, who use their no nobility and their wisdom, um, or even their education to to uh, to guile people into doing what they want. I mean, Niebuhr even says at the end of this part of the section where much of what passes for education removes no unwarranted prejudices, yeah. but merely gives men better reasons for holding them. Yeah. And so once again, we have the the issue with rationality it's not it's not when someone says well just think about it just think you got to think more about this you have to read what i do read. your research yeah, do your research i hate because yeah. it's like you're just using your reason to validate that what, what you're saying like you're already yeah. leaning toward well yeah. and, and i would and say he, maybe a better example than lockdowns because again that could be very debatable in terms of like you know was it helpful was it not helpful was it a greater social tool or a lesser social tool? I think maybe a better example of the the fault of the wise in more recent times is brought is brought to bear by this this end of uh, the second paragraph in the section. He says, "Few of the wise men of the great nations were wise enough in 1914 through 1918 to do more than clothe the prejudices and express the passions of their respective nations in more plausible and credible terms than the ignorant." Um, and that's right before what you just said. Yeah, I think yeah, and and I think that that and you could think about the lead up to this conflict between Russia and Ukraine, or this war between Russia and Ukraine, and I that really just sat in my mind, you know. Um, I love that he goes through yeah. each of these philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, Voltaire, and gives examples of how each of them were kind of beguiled, you know, yeah, uh, by their times. But I, this is a this is a really important point. I want to get you guys thoughts on this. So he says the wise the wise men. So now we're turning to judgment. Wise men are specially and severely judged because, quote, every pretense of impartiality makes partial pronouncements the more inimical to truth. So the more you pretend to be wise and impartial, the more harmful are your untruths. Yeah. What, what, what do you guys take from this, I guess? I, I think that's right. I think like the more that I maybe stand up there and pretend that I know things that I don't know, like on a Sunday morning, the more toxic it is, like when I'm actually wrong, you know, because people will take that and spread it. And, you know, yeah. Um, so there, there's got to be kind of an honesty to intellectualism, which is happening here at this church, you know, all every single Sunday, every I'm day. leading people further into the gates of hell. You are. Um <laughs> <laughs> but i mean it's funny but tune like, in tune in I next even, week yeah i even find myself like in all this like thinking about how we three like okay we're quick to say oh even on both sides but even our position of uh kind of in the middle or something like that yes. can become another uh pretension can become another form where our our wisdom beguiles us you know yeah i think when i say that I, i'm more saying something like i'm trying to stay neighborian in the sense that like it's really it's really easy for me to target certain groups when i say one right. of the sides is very easy for me to target and i have to think of the other side sometimes and be like all right like how how else is this happening in that group as well well it's tough because this, on the show we want we i don't want to turn this show into a you know a partisan cesspool you know where we're just yeah. like bashing a bunch of people and it's just all predictable like i want to you know maintain some integrity but even in our uh choices of words and trying to maintain that our pursuit of maintaining a sense of integrity there lies a certain 
temptation to beguile even ourselves. Yeah. So, mm. uh, next he goes into uh, what is going to be more further explored in Nature and Destiny of Man, and talks about how the wise are often associate like they often associate truth with consistency, um, and this oftentimes causes many of the wise people in culture to ascribe to even either a very optimistic view of history or a very pessimistic view of history. And that is an incredibly accurate assessment. I think yeah. that's, he's, yeah. It, yeah. It's hard for wise people for intellectuals to maintain an, an, an uneasy conscience. Um, we want, because the disciplines, the fields are so uh, driven towards simplicity um, you know, like it's characterized by Einstein wanting to find the simplest explanation for the way the world works. And it get, he gets into, he comes to like E equals MC squared, just the elegance of that simplicity. That's what kind of like every intellectual is after is like that, you know, that very simple way that things are. And the temptation for the wise, the wise guy, we'll call him, is to do that to history, to treat history kind of like the simplistic thing um that's going forward or backward i love how he fleshes out the the temptation or the the clash between this this the wise person wanting consistency right that's what they're uh, they're looking for flaws in or inconsistencies in people's explanations that that is a, a huge thing that the wise person if we're going to characterize them there as this and he it he says in the very next line the mixture of gratitude and contrition which characterizes the simple religions the the simple religious heart outrages their sense of consistency and it's like that is so man that that is i thought of i thought of so many of my own assessments right and and how i engage with my congregation and my community and how i'm always looking for consistency i i i i that's very important to me uh, i i have a hard time listening when people try to argue a case and they have no consistency from point to point um, and, and it almost becomes like an idol, a fixation, right? It, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and, and then Niebuhr tries to add some clarity here. And this is where it gets very nature and destiny. Like he says, quote, yet the world in reality, yet the world is both good and evil. And the proper attitude toward it is one of both gratitude for the mercies of God revealed in it and contrition for the evils which human sin has created in it. And now he's talking about the the people, the the scientists of simplicity, the wise people who want to boil everything down into simple truths. He says, whether they are appraising the world or seeking to understand man's place in the cosmos or estimate or estimating the curious mixture of good and evil in the human heart, the wise men usually resolve the paradoxes of religion and arrive at a simpler and more consistent truth which has the misfortune of being untrue to the facts of human existence. Basically, they often end up with easy consciences. They end yeah. up with you. If you view the world as simple, you will end up with easy with an easy conscience. Like I said, it's basically nature and destiny in a nutshell. Uh, now, the way that he ends, he ends with some nuance here. Um, what, well, you, go ahead, Zach. Well, I would just say, I mean, you can't, I, are, we, are you jumping to the conclusion or are you jumping just down the next line? Because we got, we got to read that line, the the two the two, two sentences right under that paragraph. It says, it. it says, most of the great truths of the Christian religion 
are the foolishness of God, which is wiser than the wisdom of men. It is apprehended not by the sharpening of human wisdom, but by humility of spirit. Mm. And that is perhaps the most revealing thing about, if you want to understand Niebuhr, that is the most revealing, what, what he's after, what he's trying to get people to understand, what he wants people to know, what he wants people to embrace. That's it right there. I mean, that's a huge, You know, it's I mean, I don't, think it, I don't think it's all of it, but I think it's a lot of it. Aaron's been reading a lot of uh, this fellow, Good Child at Nottingham, um, and he talks about this kind of spiritual disposition that precedes epistemology. And I always want, like, like we were reading something together, and I always wanted to jump to bringing Niebuhr's humility into that. Like, there's got to be a certain type of humility before you go into any attempt to understand this world. It is a part, humility is a necessary such a necessary part of the way we understand the world like it's not just this you know this nice quaint christian virtue it's literally vital to how we understand yeah. the world i mean uh just just to go on that i mean good child wrote an essay on engaged philosophy of religion which analyzes three well it's not exclusively analyzing marx kierkegaard and nietzsche but one of the fa one of the facets of these three thinkers is Kierkegaard, is that his engaged philosophy of religion is aimed at dispelling his hypocrisy, mm. right? Yeah, and, and and that, and the way in which he does that is by turning to inwardness, is what Kierkegaard calls it. Is mm -hmm. that that thing in the deepness of your soul? How do you? What does it mean to have depth of soul? Mm -hmm. Is the question of how you dispel hypocrisy for Kierkegaard and others? Well, and and I really think what Niebuhr is saying here is really what puts, <laughs> sorry, what puts Niebuhr or Christianity in tension with Nietzsche. It's the real crux of the matter. Is this humility of spirit? I think this as the as a supreme virtue. You know, what I mean, as a as a, uh, a supreme beginning to understanding how to engage the world philosophically um and i think that the way that he concludes this chapter um really gets to the nub of this he says the christian knows that the cross is the truth in that standard he sees the ultimate success of what the world calls failure and the failure of what the world calls success. So this is transvaluation to its core right here. Mm -hmm. If the Christian should be himself a person who has gained success in the world and should have gained it by excellent qualities, which uh, the world is bound to honor, he will know nevertheless that these very qualities are particularly hazardous. He will not point a finger of scorn at the mighty, the noble, and the wise, but he will look at his own life and detect the corruption of pride to which he has been tempted by his might and eminence and wisdom. If thus he counts all his worldly riches but loss, he may be among the few who are chosen. The wise, the mighty, and the noble are not necessarily lost because of their eminence. St. Paul merely declares with precise restraint that, quote, not many are called. And the last line says this, perhaps like the rich, they may enter into the kingdom of God through the needle's eye. Such a such a good, such a good, uh, that concluding paragraph is just fire. Any closing remarks? 
No, that's I mean, valuation is I... good. It helps us out. Thank you, Nietzsche. Thank you. And Niebuhr. Love you, Friedrich. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Love Thy Niebuhr. Like and subscribe, write us a good review, and follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Niebuhr. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there.